that we got that little exchange on. Uh, welcome to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is uh, Ryan Mahoney. And uh, today, I am not broadcasting in Aiming Tower 1. We are broadcasting live with, uh, well, not live, but I'm broadcasting in person. We with, are alive. We're alive, <laughs> definitely. But uh, broadcasting from the wool shed here at Amy Livestock. And I'm joined today by Dr. Rosie Bush and Mr. Dan Macon. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. I, I took a vacation day from my extension job to come down here and see what shearing was really like. So that's a great day to spend a vacation day like and, this. And Rosie did not take a vacation day. She came and tried to collect bugs off of our sheep. but She's been working. I've just been uh, watching. But we, haven't, well, we, haven't, we don't have any bugs on our sheep. No. Not no yet. No bugs. Not yet. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you, We did find a dead tick yesterday on one of the purchased in-use out of oh, Utah. Interesting. So um, that's about all we've found in this study so far. Yeah, the spray worked because <laughs> yeah. we got them in. And the first thing we did was spray them to make sure that they didn't have any mites or anything uh -huh. like that. That's the most common thing we find in our sheep we buy in. We, oh, see that, it all we the talked time. about that yesterday, actually. What are mites to you? Are the, Can you see them with your eyes? No, not really. Well, you can't see them. The mites are usually something you can't see and they're scratching like crazy. Yeah. And you'll see that wool's really frayed and a lot of cross fibering and stuff. Okay. Um, we do see like sometimes we'll maybe say mites, but like you'll see the little tiny, 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 the tiny, lice. tiny black yeah. bugs. Yeah. It's just I guess you say it more like a lice yeah. or something like that. Okay. That's what I wasn't yeah. sure because everyone says lice and ticks, and I'm curious what they're seeing. Yeah, I mean ticks are ticks. Or not pretty lice and ticks. Mites and ticks. Yeah, lice. The ticks are easy. They're the yeah. giant things full of blood. And yeah. Then, uh, but, but then there's kids, too, but I haven't seen any of those yet, either. Yeah, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> when I see nasty wool, and I see a lot of, like, the skin Creepy flaking, yeah. like dandruff, but it's not dandruff, uh -huh. then I say, oh, that must be must be a bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much what I say, Yeah. <laughs> Gosh darn critters are eating my sheep. <laughs> that would be the technical. Yeah, that's that is that's the technical term that we use. The critters are eating my sheep. But you will get a survey eventually. I know you really like surveys, mm -hmm. so. <laughs> I have a, I have a. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say the name, but I'm part of a group, and like as part of it, um, they told me they're like, oh, well, you got to do just a little survey at the end of the year. That's all. And um, so I got the email with the Google Doc. It's a 34-page survey. All right. I'm like, when am I going to be able to do this? <laughs> when in the world am I going to be able to do this 34-page like survey? Like, I don't even have enough time to shear sheep, much less like, do a 34-page <laughs> survey. So I haven't done it yet, but I need to. <laughs> and then I also have my my county farm survey I need to turn in by April 1st. I have... Uh, the FSA, I got the FSA stuff all done, all our farm plan and survey, that's all in and done. So what you're saying is you really like surveys. Well, I just have to do a lot of them. <laughs> and then we have three or four of the NAS surveys, the yeah. National Ag Statistics Service mm -hmm. surveys. And I love the data, so you, I do them happily, yeah. Yeah. but I do not like doing them, but I do them happily. Do you ever wait and make them call you for the NAS surveys? I do. So there's a guy that comes around, yeah. and he's just he's one of he's a retired police officer, <laughs> and he's just one of the nicest guys I've ever met, and um, 
<laughs> I shouldn't tell this story on this air, but he plans his uh, he plans his tours around the different uh, senior center activities in the areas because he's a single guy, and so he goes around and he does his surveys and then goes hangs out at the senior center if they have something going on. That's brilliant. And then like that's how he like sets up his tour. It's awesome. That's but, brilliant. Yeah, I haven't heard from him yet this year, and uh, but I'm looking forward to it. Check he, at the senior center. Maybe. I know, but he's pretty awesome. But that, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, I I, that I'm going to start using that for surveys for extension. Yeah, yeah, senior center activities. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great technique. Indeed. <laughs> so, how many days into shearing are you today? Oh, we are. Um, I kind of lost track. Actually, I got it in my book right here. Let me pull it down. We're we're sitting on the wool stack and. My papers are one wool bale above me. <laughs> uh, we started on March 25th, and we're now on the 30th, right? So five days in. So we were got this is day six, and we probably have one, two, three days left. Three, yeah, including today, probably four days left. Did you get enough rain this week that you had to break for a day? Uh, so we had, uh, we were we were slow starting. Uh, I was really a little, little little uh, worried that we were going to be shearing forever but um we were slow starting at the mayhood camp um due to a lot of different factors um but then we ended up having a really good day the third day in and um yeah on day three we had a good day and so it left with 247 plus all our kind of the coals and our colored 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 rams colored ewes um and so we put them in the barn when the rain came and then the afternoon it broke, and we were able to shear them that afternoon and get that 247 done so we could move out here today because otherwise we were going to be down there today, and they would have added like three more days to our shearing, and, and frankly, we're just – we got to start doing gotta something else. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. How are you, how's the wool clip? Oh, it's a good wool clip this year. Um, the, the nutrition this year, um, even throughout the drought um, – has been phenomenal. Um, we've seen that in our weaning weights, and we've seen that in our wool clip now. The length is um, is excellent. I'd say above average. Um, our strength is really strong. It's probably one of the strongest clips I've seen come through. Um, but it's a little, maybe a little bit coarser, which would go along with the adage that the higher nutrition, you have yeah. a little coarser wool. Um, I'm really curious to get the get the data back on the clip. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm most excited about is our long yearlings. So our, our replacement ewe lambs were shorn last May and we sheared them now again. So this will be their second shearing, but it's a full, well, it's 11 month clip, a little less than 11 months. And um, that the length and quality of those yearlings was absolutely exceptional this year. I mean, there, there's a chance that we might even get close to five inches on wow. on that wool. I mean, it was just exceptionally long. The the first when we started shearing them, I remember when we sheared the lambs. I was really impressed with the with the wool. I was this is really pretty fancy stuff. Um, and then when we started shearing them down there, uh, the first you know. 30 40 head I wasn't very impressed with the wool I said something's yeah that doesn't this doesn't this isn't the same wool that I remember seeing and then all of a sudden we got into the sheep and what it was is the the shears they always pick those um, kind of rounder 
clean-legged, open-faced sheep first. Mm -hmm. And once we started getting into the really heavy wool clips, I mean, that wool clip was just, I mean, I had, it was literally, we had some six inch wool coming through there. It was spectacular. Yeah. And the wool just, it, it was amazing. I was absolutely blown away. So I got the numbers of the bales and hopefully we can core those separate from the main line of our clip just, just for ego sake, but <laughs> really, really, really excited about the, the clip. So given the, the drought conditions and not the same drought everywhere, but how's the veg matter? in the wool this year here super clean super 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 clean wool i was really i'm excited to see the yield there there's some grease to it but it's a it's kind of a good weight it seems like and um does the grease come with the higher nutrition plane too do you think well i think it's probably the i would think the healthier grease yeah yeah i mean you can get some real rank yellowy stuff if the nutrition plane's off but like this is it's it's greasy but it's not super yellow mm -hmm. And um, the wool's coming off at a decent brightness, and just I I'm, I've just been really impressed with the the quality of the wool. Um, some of the best fleeces that we're getting off are just really dense and heavy, and just I mean they almost like sparkle, you know they're so <laughs> nice. And just there's not a lot of not a lot of dirt, not a lot of dirt at all. I always think a shearing is one of those points in your adult life when you're getting a report card, and. Uh, you know, I think it's I, – I always look forward even at our small scale to shearing just to see what the sheep look like underneath it, see what the wool looks like coming off, kind of see how we did the last year. Do you look at it that way to some extent too? Yeah, I'd say so. The, the, it's a – yeah, I mean, it, it reflects how you operated the whole year. Tell, you know, you can see it. You can see the – like I mentioned, the strength. The strength is really good. I mean, usually California wool can be weak because we lamb in October. And, um, and then this year in April, so the break is always going to be in the center of the clip. And with that high-stress event close to the center of the wool clip, you tend to have weaker wool than, say, the mountain states that are going to shear a month or two before lambing. So their clip's going to be at the tip. And so um, just that's always been a knock on California wool. So to, to get, get a good year like this and see that strength, that's really pretty positive. And especially, I mean, we just went through this drought. I mean, and we're not out of it. Um, and we can maybe talk about that at some point, but like here in our area, like, I know you're just sitting here, just like drooling out, looking at just the grass sitting here in next to our stack yard. Like, like I'm having to hold the microphone away from my mouth. Cause I don't want to short it out cause, I, cause I'm <laughs> yeah. drooling. No, but we, we, we're in a pretty good spot here, but I also showed you guys a picture of April 8th last year and there was nothing it was all dead and we had no feet and it's just it's amazing the reversal uh, year to year and and um, that's kind of but then through that whole drought to be able to maintain that quality clip in those sheep is really pretty special to me you guys have talked about like quantity of rain versus the timing of the rain have you guys had this similar amount like total amount of annual rainfall this year compared to last year yeah, so our normal annual rainfall is about nine, anywhere from 16 to 19 inches, depending on where you're at. Um, <clears throat> and we have, we're around 14 inches right now. Uh, we got about, well, we got almost all of it in the fall. Um, most of it came on one day. Yeah. We got like 8 to 10 <laughs> inches on one day. Um, but all of that ground, and I think I mentioned it the day after that storm, the, 
all the moisture went in the ground. It all got absorbed by the dirt. And then we didn't have any major drying weather events. So we didn't have high north wind. We didn't have anything like that. And so it was able to just kind of saturate that soil. And with the, with the cold, dry winter, it held its soil moisture through the whole winter and allowed this giant flush of feed we're getting now. And then we just got half to three quarters of an inch here two three days ago which is a little late from perfection but pretty dang good because our ryegrass is just starting and th that's going to really the ryegrass is going to explode now after that i think the difference is i'm as i'm thinking through this and i you said it was cold and dry but it's not cold and dry like it's been in the foothills so we're we're considerably more precip this year than last year but we've had less than two inches since January 1st, and it's been fairly cool. And so, because of that dry stretch, we didn't get a lot of we didn't get a lot of winter growth. We had cold storms in December, so the grass shut down, and then we haven't had hardly anything since then. And that's why I think we're we're headed out and done at with worse feed conditions this year than we had last year. Doesn't a lot of that get down to soil types? Gets down to soil type to some, some degree, but in our, you know, we're, what's your elevation here? Uh, well, we're as high as the hill is from the river, so base of the hill is zero and top of the hill is however tall the hill is. <laughs> so, so you're, yeah. I mean, you're, you're probably 25, 30 feet above sea yeah, level. Yeah, not much, most. yeah. And even though it wasn't a, a really, really cold winter, you know, we had snow in December, we had frost in January, and the grass, even if there's soil moisture, is not going to grow. And the other thing that's different where we are probably is that we have oak woodlands, and so those oaks all came out of dormancy in February, and that sucked a lot of the soil moisture out of the soil. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We don't have any trees out in our, it's all, it's very grasslands. And I mean, I've actually read some stuff where they, there, there. I think it was on Wikipedia or something talking about the Montezuma Hills, how there's no oak trees because the farmers cut them all down for farming. And I kind of started laughing. I was like, Ooh, I'm pretty sure it has to do with anything over a foot tall gets blown over in the wind. <laughs> but, <laughs> it was like, but it was talking about how this is an intensive agricultural area in the state. And I was just like, man, that is so off from what it actually is. But you can edit Wikipedia, can't you? Uh, yeah, but I'm, I don't have the time. I don't, I'm don't. i for my 34-page survey. Why am I going to mess with Wikipedia? <laughs> Obviously, I have time to Passion search project. Google, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I talked to a, a young man yesterday who was doing, I think, a senior project on, uh, on climate and meat. And I tried to be, tried to be really constructive and helpful, but he started talking about, well, you're planting trees, right? Because that's how we're going to sequester carbon. And we could go way down that rabbit hole, but there's an awful lot of rangeland that won't support a tree to save its life. So go ahead, tell your story. Go ahead. Go I ahead. got a question yeah. about yeah. trees. Go ahead. So, and I don't know if I've asked you this or not, but the state of California over the last 15, 20 years has literally planted a forest in the desert. <laughs> and this can be taken out of context to be negative, but it's I, I don't think it is. I, I, I'm just trying to ask it as an honest question. But the Central Valley 
um, especially west side stuff, but even up even up north. But really, primarily that San Joaquin and South Central Valley used to be all row crop and grassland and kind of this uh, rotational farming type system. And now it is all permanent almond trees. What effect does that, you know, we've always heard you plant, you need to plant trees to save the environment. What effect does all of those trees have on our local climate and what, you know, how, how, how do you think that affects us? And does that have anything to play with kind of the weather extremes that we've been seeing locally? Hmm. That's a good question. I, it's way above my pay grade. But we're 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 all we people listen to us on <laughs> uh, through the internet waves. So interwebs. we gotta be on the yeah on the interweb waves. So we gotta be somewhat smart. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know that it's changed climate or weather. I do think it has. Um, so when I went to school at Davis. Back in ancient history, I mean, we had, we still were writing on on blackboards with and shovels with coal when I was in school, but we had fog like from about the first of November until spring break, and that's that's not part of the Davis environment anymore, really. How how many days of fog did you have this year? I don't remember. A handful. Any. Yeah. 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 So I wonder if there's something related to that. I think the other thing that it's changed, particularly in the San Joaquin, is that it has really solidified water demand down there. So if you had a bad year when it was all kind of annual crop systems, you grazed it off and you went on. And now you got to have water because of those that investment in the trees, right? Yeah, that and then I think the you know, the the almond trees. So in and this is I'm way out, outside of the 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 arena of normal thought right now. Has that ever stopped you? No, not at all. Not at all. I can't can't wait to get some emails about this thing. But um, like managing pasture, I always want diversity, and the more diversity, the healthier the animals are. Right? The the more like plant diversity or species diversity within a pasture, uh, the better the animals tend to do. Um, unless it's like stickers and a bunch of garbage grasses, but generally as a rule, you want that diversity and, um, row crops are, you know, single crop product, but you often have rotations and the, the farmers rotate for soil health. So they'll rotate, you know, tomatoes and then into corn and then into this, and they're doing it for the different root structures to help that soil health. So you need somewhat of that diversity, but a lot of the almond, you know, when you go to a permanent crop, and um, trees, particularly, they um, you tend to have nothing growing underneath, and a lot of them, not your non-organic varieties, at least, you have um, basically completely dead soil underneath the tree, outside of just the tree. All of the nutrients, everything is going to that tree, and so you don't have the water runoff. You don't have all of the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lot different, you know ecological system within that orchard and that to me I've always just naturally I don't know if I like that I don't know if it's better like I said this isn't like a uh <laughs> you know we need to get rid of almond trees discussion I I think that they're they're a great commodity and a good product and there's a there's a great spot for them and there's a really good reason why they've all been planted and I think this but, it's good to have these questions and to you know maybe explore 
with people who maybe know a little bit more about almond trees. Yeah. But I have seen some systems that have sheep and have cover crop, and they're beautiful, and they are very diverse, and they... But that's not maybe the most common way to grow those, but I think that's a neat. There's actually a, a lot of interest again. It, what's what's interesting to me about some of this is it's all stuff that we knew and we used to do, and then we got away from it, and now there's interest in finding out why it works. And so there's there are the nut crops that are harvested off the ground are a little more difficult to some degree to integrate livestock with. But where, and some of that's being driven by the marketers um, and, and the first handlers. But I think there's some good opportunity in that regard. One thing I, I do wonder about, um, if you read a book called The Worst Hard Times about the Dust Bowl? No. Worth reading. So go out and get it. Noted. But one of the points that they make in the, in the Dust Bowl era Leading up to the Dust Bowl era, the universities and the USDA were pushing people to plant grains on the Great Plains because we had the technology now to do it. And then it quit raining. And the university, who I work for, has been developing almond varieties that can grow on rangeland and, and go other places because we can do it. And sometimes I wonder if that's really a good long-term strategy, too. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, just in my my little niche of the world, the one thing I've realized is, you know, it's very hard to control it all. And you can never blame one thing for being the problem. It's always a multitude of things. And so, like, you know, we're discussing, like, what kind of, you know, I guess my question is, is like, what, that that conversion in cropping patterns in the state I think may have had some kind of effect on the local climates. And I think it's more in like the fog layers in those kind of things. As far as like, you know, the almond trees are the cause of global warming. That's ridiculous because <laughs> there, there, there's, there's a hundred thousand causes. We got to blame one thing though. Come I on. know, but that's, yeah. So like that's, but I think it's good to ask the question at least. And, and I just, I'm curious cause I've never heard any discussion. You always hear about a lot of, people blaming things, but there's not, I, I don't hear a lot of discussion about some of these major shifts that I, I think really have. I mean, they definitely have had effect on groundwater and groundwater recharge and how the water system works in the state of California. Um, there's a lot of things that are factored into that too, as far as dam storage or water storage, our conveyance systems are getting old. There's a, there's a, our, just our population growth. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, you talk about water, there's a, once again, there's a thousand things to talk about. But um, I've always just been curious about that because, you know, those when you I know when you when you have a grassland, it functions a certain way and it holds water a certain way and it runs off a certain way. And then when you have a forest that operates a different way. And I just you know, you've always heard, you know, you got to plant a tree to save the world. Well, the California planted millions in trees and. We still haven't saved the world, so I'm curious. <laughs> just making me think, what's going on? So anyway, that was not the topic, and uh, I'm really excited about the wool I sheared today. Wait a minute, we went down a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a big one. Imagine that. Yeah, really, imagine good one. that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, back to back to the wool and and kind of the year that we've had and the the I, I wrote a little article about kind of the taxonomy of drought, that drought's different 
by the year and by the season and by the region. And all that said, and we've talked about this before, it seems like sheep are able to adapt to those changing conditions um, as well as any of the other livestock that we've got here in California. And that gives us some flexibility to deal with drought that maybe isn't there for cattle, I guess. Does that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, going into the drought, we had 1,400 cows and 3,500 ewes. Coming out of the drought, I want 1,200 cows and 5,000 ewes. <laughs> kind of to take that, you know, and just kind of put it into our practical, yeah. what we want to do on our system. The, the sheep are just so much more resilient throughout drought. Um, you learn about your ranch and your area every weather event you have. And um, my grandpa has always said that, you know, cows are, you, you should never overstock your cows in the Montezuma Hills because of the soil types and because of the way the, the weather works. And, and I think that was very much proven out in this drought. And it's also proven out in the big rains that we get to. And, and so it was kind of a good opportunity to kind of reassess where we're at and change some things around a little bit. Um, but yeah, sheep are just so much more, they're mo they're more mobile. They don't have the same water requirement, which is probably the big limiting factor on cows. Um, and then you're able to get into spots the cows can't. You, you take cows and put them in a field with some average fence and they'll destroy it in six months. You throw sheep into a field with two bob wires and they'll stay in a lot of times. <laughs> you know, it's, they're, it's amazing how much cheaper it is to run with some sheep, but then with that, it's more, it's easier to get in and out of different areas with sheep. I think the mobility and the flexibility, um, and, and particular for us in a year like this, you know, I'm talking to some of my cattle friends up there in the foothills that the feed they've got is the feed they've got. And the only way to, to adjust is to buy hay or to sell cows. The feed we have, because of the way we've use um, temporary electric fence and we can move sheep around we can haul water to them we just build bigger pastures and we've got that opportunity to to get through a year like this so we're sitting here in our hay barn that has our wool in it we're sitting on the hay bales but if you look over there i have most of the barn is giant big bales and i have this little stack of small bales small bales are for the sheep big bales are for the cows <laughs> <laughs> and, a lot more big <laughs> and there's a lot more big bales there and we haven't fed any for quite a while because of our grass but still it's i mean that right there just is to your point right. um i mean we have to we have to substitute feed for the cows right. we are supplementing feed for the sheep right right so you know that's a, a term a lot of us in livestock know but i'm always surprised about by the number of people who don't get the difference between substitution and, and supplemental feeding. So, Ryan, how do you define those two terms? Well, uh, supplementing is you're at a specific point in the life cycle of the animal or the growing season of your grass, and you're trying to supplement specific things. So alfalfa hay is specifically supplementing protein. Um, minerals are... And fiber. And fiber. 
usually we have a lot of fiber that time of year. Well, and so I, the I supplementation say, is more protein. I say that only because if you're in a place where you do want more time in one place, that fiber helps you get more time from one area. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Yep. And then um, substitution is when you have no feed and you're they're getting you know over a majority of their dietary needs from the feed you're giving them so when our pastures ran out of feed the cows were getting 80 percent of their daily intake from the hay whereas the sheep when we were out feeding the sheep they were getting 30 percent of their daily need from the hay kind of that so that's the difference between supplementation and substitution i would say I think that that distinction about providing specific nutrients, whether it's protein or energy or, or minerals, is the for me the important distinction. And part of the drought strategy that we've had is that if we can save enough feed in the fall, and we don't we don't lamb when you do, so our feed demand is as low as it's going to get in October, November. But if we save enough of that dry feed, then I can ma I can skate through with a little extra protein from alfalfa or from a, some other source. Um, whereas if I had a cow that was pregnant for nine months, that gives me a little less flexibility in that regard too, right? That so that production calendar is part of the part of the strategy, I think. Yeah, definitely. It's both. It's both and. And it's it's important to just I think the main thing is to know when you're like when we lamb we lamb in October um, we're feeding alfalfa to those heavy ewes and drop bunches they're getting you know we're substituting feed for that but it's a very targeted specific reason why we're doing it and um, it's budgeted in the drought what that screws up is you end up having to substitute feed when you normally wouldn't be and that's where it gets very expensive and like with cows it's a that's just crazy. And we could always, you know, in that October time frame when we're lambing, a lot of people, they lamb on the alfalfa fields, which is, you know, we could do that as well. We're choosing to buy the hay and feed it manually around our barns, or we could go out and lamb them in a field. So we do have an option there, and we're making a choice. So it doesn't mean that if you're substituting for a period of time, it's wrong. Feedlot, when we fatten our lambs, that's 100% total mixed ration. That's a but that's a very intentional decision we're making to do it. And this year probably is a really bad decision because the grain prices are insane. <laughs> and your gains on grass are really good, right? Right now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Problem is marketing windows and supply yeah, chain stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um we were gonna talk we had lots of topics that we were thinking about today, but um, we're only like 40 minutes in. We can go to our oh, topic now. Well, heck, what the heck? Yeah. So what did we decide? I don't, I don't know, know that we ever really decided. I don't know. We're just chatting. <laughs> so one of the, the things that um, comes up in workshops, comes up when you tell people you raise sheep, um, I'm, I'm doing a talk on backyard. They wanted backyard goats, but I made it backyard everything, small room in it. But people always say sheep are stupid, right? Have, have you guys ever heard somebody say tell you sheep are stupid? Always. Have you ever said sheep are stupid? Only when I'm in a truck unloading or loading. <laughs> <laughs> See the exit. Yeah. <laughs> so David Hamilton told me yeah. 
that people say sheep are stupid, but he always responds that in order to work sheep well and effectively, you've got to be smarter than them. And 95% of the people he's met don't pass that test. I'm surprised he's met 5% that can. <laughs> I am too, actually. <laughs> I, am might, too. I guess he does run in sheep circles, so that kind of that that buffers that, it a that, little bit. That yeah. covers the numbers. But what what makes sheep I don't I I prefer working with sheep, but what makes sheep different than cattle or goats or other other livestock? I can't speak to goats, so I don't know if you want to Dr. Bush, but um as far as cattle um I mean I grow, growing growing up in the in the on the ranch after I graduated college cuz I kind of disappeared for a little bit, but um I always enjoyed like I mean I I always enjoyed like reading Temple Grandin or watching different ways of the different uh, Bud Williams and his livestock handling tools and and so a lot of the theories that I formed and tried out as I was growing up were kind of very much cattle focused and I've always enjoyed that but I've always felt they never really worked on sheep and. I think the and and I've heard like even I mean Temple Grandin's designed the corrals at the different packing houses and, and for lambs and she's done a good job but um, sheep are so much more of a herd animal than a cow is and they're so much less they're so much more nervous when they become isolated and um, and their reaction to isolation is much different and so all of those factors like play into the differences on how to work sheep and cattle and um you know the the what is it the uh they always say like one sheep jumps off a cliff all the sheep are going to jump off the cliff um but at the same time all sheep go to heaven (laughs) so (laughs) you know there's something to that that's good right you know isn't that powerful but (laughs) But that you know that that herd mentality of uh, th- there's a lot of value in that herd mentality. There's a lot of protection. There's a lot of safety. There's a lot of security. And um, to me, there's there's so much trust that's involved from animal to animal. And that that's a sort of trust that I think we as people could maybe learn a little bit from, you know, and actually be able to, you know, you you look at like an assembly line, like. Henry Ford's assembly line. The whole assembly line is one of the most brilliant industrial, you know, advancements in in our country in being able to create that. But that involves trust at every single level. Level. Every person has a specific job, and every person along that chain trusts the other person to do that job. And sheep function in the same way. It's a big trust s- situation. When one sheep on the outside feels it, it receives a threat that threat is communicated immediately through the entire herd and they react as one fluid body and it's just it's a really beautiful um, communication system within sheep that it takes a long time to actually see and if you can see it it's then a really big challenge to understand it because I think that's where, for example, with lambing, when you're trying to bring one you in with her lamb or you're trying to sort off. I think, you know, when we're trying to manipulate within that behavior, that's where people get frustrated because we're trying to we're not working with their na- their normal behaviors, you know. 
read something that Roger Ingram, my sheep partner, learned from uh, from Bud Williams, and kind of the the old approach to working livestock that Bud would talk about is that I'm going to make that you do what I need her to do, and the new approach is I'm going to let her do what I need her to do, and that that seems like it's just a minor change in semantics, but I think it gets to that understanding of behavior that is different with sheep. They're much more social animal than cattle or goats are. And and so that isolation is much more difficult for them to handle and and frustrates us when we think we need to isolate them, I think. That's, I think that's a good point. I interrupted you, though, Dr. Bush. So how are they different than goats? You work with goats more than I do. Goats are... <laughs> and, and, and his email that address is <laughs> that is from a cake song he didn't create that cake is one of the greatest bands of the <laughs> yes. 90s and 2000s absolutely yeah. I have all of their albums <laughs> besides the point um, it's, all, it's also from the bible it's not just from a cake song oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was written a few years before the cake song but <laughs> Depends on the book. Depends on the edition, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I digress. Uh, back to goats. Why? Shocking. How are goats different from sheep in their behavior? <laughs> goats are... <laughs> they're, they're more curious, I feel like, and they, they are definitely more independent. They um, like to get themselves in trouble, depending on the breed within goats. Um... They're, I mean, they're very, I don't know, they like to test the boundaries, <laughs> I would say. But, um, I don't know, they're very, they like to jump on things, and that's just part of their behavior is they're just all over the place and curious. And so they're more likely to approach you. They don't necessarily want to be caught by you, but they'll be willing to come up to you and check you out. What are what are some of the differences or what are some of the things you've observed or seen in a really good goat handler, a good husbandry person when it comes to goats that is kind of unique to that species or person? Uh, they're very gentle. Uh, they're very particular about how you handle them and, you know, they're... I don't know. It's it's like a finesse kind of thing the way that they handle these goats, and I mean the most of my experience is with dairy goats, and you think it takes more finesse for a goat than a sheep? Um, or different finesse? I think it's different. I think that like when you're physically handling a goat, that there's there are very specific pla- ways to do it, which is the same for a sheep you know it may look more dramatic when we're handling sheep but it's very specific and intentional um and it takes a really you know as i'll learn (laughs) at the shearing school it's very like there is a finesse and a technique to that and i i think moving groups of goats there are some similarities in terms of behavior. I think think all livestock respond to pressure and to release from pressure. I think where the distinction comes in is what is pressuring a sheep is is going to be different than what puts pressure on a goat, and so consequently the release from pressure may be a little different too. Um, 
I've only unloaded maybe two semis worth of goats in my life, and I would prefer sheep just because I read the sheep better. Um, but I think they also, they do respond to that kind of pressure release type of system that, that Bud Williams talks about and Temple Grandin talks about. They're just so much more independent. And so they don't read necessarily read the cues the same as, you know, sheep sees the opening and the sheep behind it sees that sheep see the opening and they go. And I find that goats don't always respond to those cues the same way in bigger groups. Yeah, so goats tend to be more clicky. So they have like six to eight in a bunch that tend to be really close together. So they're not like sheep where if you get if you get a good flow, they're all going. You it tend it's yeah. So goats are street gangs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why they go. That's to why. There you go. <laughs> Solved. Two thousand years of mystery. Check. <laughs> Done. Next problem. Next. It's okay. But they also have like a uh, hierarchy between those groups. So if you find, like, if you work with these animals all every day, you know who the leaders are. And, you know, I think, yeah, they're different in that way that they, even within the herd, there are little micro social groups. And it's important to understand that social structure between those. Are those groups fluid, or are they pretty well set within a given group of goats? They're, they seem to be pretty well set. They'll have babies at the same time. They are, yeah. And yeah, another reason why it's really important to know those groups, because if you are changing, like, cohorts and things, you want to try to keep those together. Unless they're troublemakers, and I imagine you want to take them apart. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> It's very interesting. I know I, I know a little tiny bit more about goats now than I did about ten minutes ago, and uh, yeah, I definitely know nothing. Yeah, they're they're a unique animal. I, I mean, my I like the sheep because I understand the sheep, and I am the first to admit I don't understand goats, which is why I don't like the goats. Um, that doesn't mean. I will never get goats or I'll never learn them or anything like that. It just, I think it's really important to understand how distinct the goats from sheep from cows are because we haven't even talked about cows, but they are so incredibly different than sheep and goats in the way they operate. So how? How? Uh, well, they're bigger and they'll kill you is number one. Uh, <laughs> but no, they, uh, they're, a herd, they're a herd animal, so they're they're let they they don't operate in like the little groups like goats do they operate more as a general herd like sheep but they're much more independent especially if you have a cow calf pair you will hold them separate but then you also have a huge bond between the cow and the calf that if you separate it there's a there's a, a traumatic experience or it's very <laughs> It, you know, the cow will, if you take, if I take on this ranch right here, we're looking, and if I take one calf from that bunch of cows right there, and I put it just to the south of the dump there, 20 miles away or whatever that is, 10 miles away, that cow tomorrow morning will be at that calf because it's just, they'll, they'll jump every single fence in the country if you wean wrong. If you, if I try, if you take these cows and you leave the calves here and you move the cows to Dixon, the cows will jump all of the fences between here and Dixon and come home. 
you do that to sheep, the sheep go out and they talk a little bit and then they start eating grass and they forget <laughs> they even had a lamb. You know, that's an exaggeration, but it's very true. Like that's one of, there's a bond there that's pretty exceptional that those cows and calves have. And um, they're a little more fierce, but they're more independent, like on their own. Um, you know, a cow, like when you're trying to get cows to go, you can take one cow, isolate her, move her forward, and the other cows won't react. They'll actually go away, let the cow go. Um, the sheep, they follow. You know, they always stay together. So I don't know exactly where this leads us, but I, I did observe this with, with my sheep dogs. Um, when I worked at the Sierra Field Station with cattle, I took two dogs that had always worked sheep to work cows there. And one dog in particular was really hard-headed. And he became a, an incredible sheep dog after having to work cows because I think he had to think more about it. <laughs> and he had to listen and, and actually understand that I was helping him at that point. But I, I think part of that was driven by the cow, the difference in cow behavior too, as you're describing, that um, their, their maternal bonds are different. Your ability to isolate one from the rest is different. And I think that makes understanding how to work both makes you a better handler of both, I think. De definitely. And like um, cows, you can use noise a little more than you can use um, other things. With sheep, um, especially wooled sheep, they're super sensitive to noise. And their reaction to noise is to put their head down and tie it next to another animal. Whereas a cow, a lot of times the noise will be to go and get away from or something like that. Or so head up and, head up and go. And so a lot of times, like working bull sheep, the mo one of the most important things is to be quiet and let them see it on their own pace. Cows, you can push more, and you'll see that in the dogs that work the species. A, a, a good sheep dog is way more patient than a good cow dog because they need to be for the two species. It's, you know, they're both excellent creatures and doing an excellent job top of their class. But um, And you can, you can cross them, but it's nowhere near, like one and... They always specialize in one or the other, just by the way they act. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Indeed. So, sheep are stupid, Dan. What do you say to dumb sheep? You're, you're sheep or dumb, Dan. What are you going to What do you say to me? I've started responding with, with what David Dave's? Hamilton says, but, but I also, um, when I'm teaching, I think, Part of it is getting people to see those subtle differences and how a sheep is responding how to do you, too. How do you teach uh, somebody that's starting? I mean, there's a lot of people that are jumping into agriculture right now. How do you how do you learn to see the little things in sheep hmm. that come with time or any kind of livestock? But how do you you know how do you encourage someone to start to open their eyes to understand the differences? We were talking a little bit about that with lambing, you know, and and. And pulling a lamb, you can see all the pictures, read all the books, um, and until you've actually had to pull several hundred lambs, you're probably still still learning, right? And and probably always still learning. But I think in teaching somebody, there's no substitute for getting experience and for being intentional about the experience, paying attention to what worked. Pay, I always the, notice what didn't work. <laughs> like, well, shoot, I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's when I'm working with somebody else. I'm working with Roger moving sheep. One of the things we always try to do is talk before the work about what we expect to happen. 
and then talk after the work about why everything went wrong and what we could have done different. And I think that's the mark of a good stock person is that you're you're always in communication with the livestock and you're learning what you said that ticked those sheep off or scared the sheep or whatever and trying to adjust the next time you're in that situation. Yeah, I think that's really cool about having someone to work with is that you can always bounce those ideas off of each other. I don't know that I've had that opportunity. <laughs> well, yeah, it could be working with, but it's also like talking to other people and yeah. And when you're when you're somewhere and you see somebody doing, I mean, you guys just watch my guys push the lambs into the shearing shed, and I guarantee you, you saw four hundred mistakes that were made. Four, maybe 450 mistakes that were made. <laughs> and there was only 390 lambs. So you know, there, there's a lot of mistakes to get made, but um, there's also some things at work that you know may have surprised you or may have seen something. And so it's when you're somewhere else, you look and you learn and you see and you see the lambs' behavior and you think, oh, if, if they would have done this this way, it would have worked better. And you may have not actually done any of it, but you are at least thinking about it and seeing it. And it comes through those constant experiences is how you learn because then you might try something the next time you get a chance to work sheep and prove yourself right or wrong i think that's the mark of a good stock person is is accepting the responsibility when it doesn't go right and trying to adjust what you're doing as opposed to blaming the sheep or blaming the cows yeah you can never blame the sheep or cows you really can't yeah i mean and, and they can be very stubborn and you're 100% right and staying. Those are incredibly stubborn sheep. But ultimately, you have to learn how to handle those incredibly stubborn sheep. And so, yeah, I mean, it's – and you can you can blame a lot of things, but it's – the one factor you can change when you come to a set of corrals and you're working a set of sheep is yourself and the way you act. And so that's, you know, that's really the only variable you can truly can control. And I think there is something to be said, you know, certainly – facility design is going to help a lot of it but sometimes you just get what you get <laughs> well, yeah i mean you're working you on fixed to... budgets we all don't have a hundred grand to build a set of corrals right <laughs> you know, we gotta well, we gotta yeah you gotta you gotta deal with what you have and then yeah. you just learn like uh, our marking corrals we um on our alfalfas um, we have wooden panels we've always had wooden panels but we've changed those wooden panels like five different times in the design and the way we line them up is different than we used to just the you know and it's it's all based on every time you're trying it if something doesn't work right how do you how do you make the bubble in the back to filter better how do you you know how do you stage the lambs you need another compartment you need less compartments and it's just that constant questioning and trying to learn from the behavior of the sheep right. and then you can change yourself mm -hmm. and i do want to i do want to update these corrals at some point i think i asked you about where do you go about corral designs but I gotta wait a few years before I do it, but I, these, these corrals I'd love to redesign because we do have some flow issues here. And I wasn't even talking specifically about here, but no, like I'm talking about here because it's <laughs> literally been on my list for like six years. But I think that's um, you know that you're talking about the the marking corrals. One of the things that Roger's good about doing that I need to be better about is taking pictures of our setup. Like we'll set up um, portable corrals to load out here in a couple of weeks and loading pairs into a gooseneck that only has a wide swing door 
is always a bit of a challenge. And Roger's good about really taking kind of the subtle differences into account in how we set up from one year to the next. Um, but part of that, too, is then adjusting on the fly. Something's not working right. What did we do different or what can we do different now, given our setup, to make it flow better? And I think that's part of the part of becoming a stock person, too, is that you're just you're you're adjusting on the fly. And, yeah. And, that, and I up. think, too, you work with other people. And it's really important that if somebody else is doing something wrong, um, you don't you don't want to just start a fight. You don't want to make them quit. You don't want them to think you're picking on them. You need to allow them to make you, – you need to figure out a way to allow them to make the mistake, see the mistake, and then adjust over time. Because some in some of the times the behavior changes from person to person because we're clicky depending on what group is working sheep. You know, there's – and so – you know, you, 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 it's really, it's really important to, to observe all these things, have all these opinions, but don't expect you to run every little detail in that unless it's your, um, unless it's been like clearly your responsibility to, because even like, like I said today, you know, we got, um, you guys were back there and we had three or four guys helping push the sheep up and they're lambs. The ewes are behind them, so they're wanting to go back to the ewes that are calling at them. Um, and it's a narrow and it's a hard turn. Um, and the hard turn works really well for ewes and rams, but not well for lambs. Mm -hmm. And the ramp that we're walking them up is just wide enough to where they can turn around easy. We got burritos coming, I think. Oh. Um, but so, like, you know, do you, you know, I'm not going to step in and tell people to completely change everything if they're all working to get them up. You can bring it up, Justin. Thank you for the burritos. Thank you for burritos. Um, but you know, it's it's just you gotta just you gotta let people work, and you, but you still have to be observing and learning, mm -hmm. um, so that way maybe you can make a change next time you work the sheep, or maybe you make a change to the corrals eventually, or maybe you set up slightly differently, and that way people don't feel blamed and you're not picking on anybody. You're just trying to improve it for all of them. So you got me all pastor. I'll take pastor. There's two pastors. I'll take I'll take whatever. You had steak, right? And you get a pastor, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're at 55 minutes, so I think you can we can probably you want to take us out, Rosie, and we're going <laughs> to eat these burritos. All right, this is <laughs> sheep stuff you should know. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. And if you have any questions about goats, um, Ryan's Instagram account Rancher. At California Sheep Rancher. Yes, has been deactivated. <laughs> <laughs> has been deactivated through uh, middle of next month. Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> talk to him after that. Yeah.